Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on April 3rd, 2019, honoring the work of former fellows in the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia University. Past fellow Ilana Feldman is currently a professor of anthropology, history, and international affairs at George Washington University. Professor Feldman studies the Palestinian experience, both within and outside of Palestine itself, through ethnographic and archival research. Her 2018 book, Life Lived in Relief, Humanitarian Predicaments and Palestinian Refugee Politics, examines the complex dynamics between Palestinian refugees and the humanitarian organizations that have tried, and sometimes failed, to assist them over more than 70 years of displacement. Professor Feldman shows how individuals affirm the meaning and value of their lives through a unique form of refugee politics, when a situation at first assumed to be temporary turns out to span multiple generations. The first talk, by Professor Feldman herself, discusses the book's arguments and methodology in more detail. We'll also hear a panel response from Professor Jordana Bilkin, another former fellow in the Society of Fellows and professor in the Department of History at the University of Washington. I was here at the Society of Fellows from 2002 to 2004, um, and I, I wouldn't say I, I prepared to write my first book here. I, I don't know. Um, and um, um, so to say very briefly um, what I'm trying to do in this book. It's a, it's a book about the Palestinian refugee experience, living with, against, in relation to humanitarian assistance uh, for seven decades. So from 1948, um, when I started the project, I would say from 1948 to the present, but there, I mean, there, there, there came to be a conclusion, not only because the book had to be written, but the events in Syria were marked a an ending point for me because they in certain places they really of course transformed things and that is not as is often the case I gesture to it in the conclusion but that's not um, the subject of this book but I'm looking across um, the, the basically the five primary fields where the where UNRWA which is the UN agency for Palestine refugees works Lebanon Jordan Syria the West Bank and Gaza and doing um, archival research and ethnographic work. I was trained as a historian and anthropologist and try to live in between somehow. Um, so I'm exploring throughout here two sets of questions. One about humanitarianism and um, particularly about what happens to humanitarianism as it becomes long term. Um, you know, this is a form of intervention that is self-conceived, that is apprehended and self-defined as a crisis intervention. You know, get in, get out. Um, but in, frequently and increasingly, this is not the case in, in you know across the globe. So the Palestinians, which are all, the case is often identified as exceptional, but it's just on one end of a spectrum of what is an extremely common phenomenon of protracted displacement and therefore the need for 
long-term humanitarian assistance. But that, that long, those long-term conditions do pose challenges for humanitarian actors and for the humanitarian apparatus. So what, how does humanitarianism respond when it has to deal with, uh, with chronic conditions as much as crisis situations? How is its purpose challenged and redefined? And how are humanitarian mandates and constituencies stretched, reconfigured, and limited by that process? And then I have a set of questions about uh, how Palestinians who have lived with humanitarian assistance over multiple generations, multiple decades, how they pursue their lives and politics in this context. And particularly, I'm interested in the ways in which humanitarian procedures, discourses, and materials can provide tools for, as much as impediments to, their efforts to make claims and live their lives. So I'm looking both at what would be sort of the more familiar humanitarian politics of life, right, sort of the governance of populations through humanitarianism, and also the politics of living in humanitarian spaces, how people survive and strive, and again, not just despite, though sometimes despite, but through the humanitarian apparatus. Um, and so in looking at this sort of extended time frame, I'm use the term punctuated humanitarianism to try to describe the move between the chronic and the crisis from the humanitarian situation, which is that crisis moment that generates a response to the humanitarian condition, sort of the long-term process of living with chronic need, which is no less connected to the, the causes of, humanitar of a humanitarian situation, but it's sort of ebbed into a different rhythm, different flow. And the, what I'm trying to capture with the, the idea of punctuated humanitarianism is both this sort of oscillating experience between crisis and chronic, the shifting rhythms of change where things, you know, there is this ebbing and then a, you know, a um, sort of sudden and dramatic rupture into crisis. Um, and then the varieties of efforts to respond to those things. And I'm looking at the effects of these dynamics on both providers and recipients. So for providers, you have um, a phenomenon where, in fact, a humanit humanitarian providers are by and large energized and given purpose by emergency, which is not to say that they are happy when there is an emergency, but they are clear when there is an emergency, and, it, and very uncertain about how to respond to chronic conditions. And then even more so, and this is what you often see in the case of Palestinians in, in camps, is that their conditions are not just chronic, but seemingly unchangeable. So not only can you not save a life, because life is not at risk, it's not very clear that you can change a life, and, but yet you have an imperative to act. And so this is one of the, this is one of the challenges that providers grapple with over this. And then for recipients, um, these changing rhythms mean that people move in and out of very different relationships to a humanitarian apparatus, which of course is itself changing over time. And in the midst of violence, which is the time when need feels more, most acute, that is often a time when humanitarians cannot actually reach people. Um, and then in, again, in chronic conditions, as I said, they often can't do much for them. And then on the, the question of how people sort of politics of living and sort of Palestinian politics in, the, in these contexts, in this kind of long-term humanitarian condition, I'm interested in what I describe as a discordant politics. Um, and by that I mean that people are engaged with 
multiple temporalities, multiple geographies, multiple goals, all at once, right? The, the, the near of Lebanon and the far of Palestine. The better life tomorrow and a restored life in, the, in some distant future. And liberation versus improvement, right? And all of these aims are part of the palette of Palestinian political claims. But the fact that they're all part of this palette doesn't mean that they fit smoothly together. They are sometimes and often in contradiction or are felt to be in contradiction. People worry that one sort of goal may get in the way of the other. And yet there is a necessity to pursue a politics of, uh, across all of these lines. Um, and in so doing, people make of the refugee category and the refugee status a category which is not meant to offer a political status, they claim it and make it a, a place of political subjectivity, and from which people take a variety of actions and make a variety of claims, both claiming a right to humanitarianism, but also claiming humanitarian rights, and claiming that humanitarian rights are themselves political rights. Um, Next, we hear from Jordana Bailken a professor in international studies at the University of Washington. Professor Belkin studies empire and the shifting status of modern Britain. Her most recent book, Unsettled, Refugee Camps and the Making of Multicultural Britain, explores the interaction between displaced British people and international refugees occupying camps in Britain in the 20th century. In these comments, Professor Bailkin discusses how Professor Feldman's methodology brings out the distinctive experiences of Palestinians who have been living in refugee camps for most or all of their lives. At the end, we'll hear some discussion between Professors Bailkin and Feldman about Professor Feldman's use of both archival and ethnographic research methods. Um, well, thank you. Um, I'm a longtime reader and a big fan of Alana's work, so it was really a great pleasure to have a chance to respond to this wonderful new book. Um, and as someone who's worked on refugee camps in another context, there was so much that resonated for me here, um, but there's also so much that's unfamiliar and surprising. And I think that's because what, um, part of what the book does so deftly is it highlights both what is distinctive about the Palestinian refugee experience and also what's emblematic about it. And I think it holds that tension between um, the distinctive and the emblematic um, in really nuanced ways throughout the story. And I think that's so important because for scholars of refugees, Palestinians are often taken as the archetypal refugees, right? They are the Ur refugees, uh, the world's best known refugees, and yet there are also no other refugees like them in that kind of um, familiar narrative. Um, and so I think it's very important that uh, Alana reminds us of these kind of unexpected ways that Palestinians have lived both in and against humanitarianism for 70 years, um, perhaps the longest emergency. And I was very interested to read um, how some people feel closer to the camp um, at the stage that Alana was doing her research than they do to this long-lost Palestine. Um, and I was really struck by a comment from one refugee who was interviewed, uh, Aliyah, um, who has a, this very deep attachment to her camp in East Amman. Um, I just wanted to read a quote from her uh, that's in the book. She says, I love the camp, to be honest. I have the ability to leave it, 
but the nature of the camp, my connection to my cause, my connection with the national suffering are what is connecting me to the camp. So there's this very profound tie um, that this woman has to the camp that is, I think, really unexpected. Um, so there's an important move away here from more familiar uh, narratives by Hannah Arendt onwards um, that really see refugee life only in terms of objection and despair. And I think Lana really shifts that, um, that discourse to be much more diverse and um, much, much wider. Uh, one of the major contributions of the book is that it's not content with the humanitarian perspective, uh, but it really does so much to highlight the voices and perspectives of Palestinians themselves. Um, and one of the elements that's really brought out by Alana's uh, really stunning ethnographic research is how refugees actually understand the categories that they inhabit and the experiences that they've had. So she really gets us into um, how they think of and how they judge each other. Um, and I was, I was very intrigued to see that some of the starkest divisions in this book are not between humanitarians and refugees, which we might come into the book trying to expect. Um, but what she reveals is that you know, the vast majority of humanitarians or aid workers in this context are themselves refugees. So it's, there's not populations that we can separate out. There's not a sharp distinction between people who give aid and people who receive it. Um, so Susan made this very welcome point about the fungibility of categories in my book. And I think that um, really resonates in Alana's work, too, that um, you can't necessarily tell by looking you know, who is a refugee, who is a humanitarian. These are people who are very deeply interconnected with one another. So instead, the biggest divide is really between refugees of different generations, um, those who remember Palestine and those who remember only the camp that kind of form their political subjectivities and stances around that experience. Um, so I was interested to see that even the term refugee is generationally defined. Um, so for older people, if Alana asked them you know, what being a refugee meant to them, how did they understand that term, they really focus on the experience of having left their villages. So, you know, why are you a refugee? Well, because we left. We left where we were from. Um, and that's really this kind of defining, that's what makes you a refugee, is that you've left where you were from. But for the younger generation, that leaving is really a betrayal and a mistake um, of the Palestinian um, identity. So they say things like, you know, it was their fault. They shouldn't have run away. Um, so there's this very interesting generational split, um, even in just understanding what it means to be a refugee. Humanitarianism has a very troubled relationship to generation in this book, um, because it has a troubled relationship to time. Um, it's intended, of course, always to be temporary. And I think what Alana brings out is just how uh, durable and endless the temporary can be in a refugee context. Um, so I just wanted to pull out two moments in the book related to the time scale in which refugees live. Um, and I want to mention she has this really vivid idea of punctuated time or oscillating time um, in which refugees live. So one seems to be um, a kind of optimistic moment in the book, which is a sign from a disability rehabilitation center um, that says, it is my right to have a bright future. 
And I thought that was really interesting to think about one's relationship to time and one's relationship to the future specifically as a right, to declare that as a, a right that people can claim. Um, and it evokes one of the contradictions that refugees have to live with, I think not just in, uh, not just Palestinian refugees, um, but elsewhere as well. You know, as Alana puts it, how do you make demands for a better life now even as you're insisting on the right to anticipate a fundamentally different future, right? How do you hold that, that contradiction? So there's that this kind of um, possibly optimistic moment where we see someone um, making a claim for their right to imagine a future in which they are not refugees, they are not in the camp, but they are also enmeshed in the camp at the moment they make that claim. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, we have what to me is the most shocking moment in the book where the claims of the future are kind of shut down. And that is when a number of refugees told Alana um, that refugees don't have the right to live past the age of 60, um, which initially sounded hyperbolic and, and kind of you know hard to understand. But then she found, in fact, this was UNRWA's position um, that everything except primary medical care would be withdrawn for refugees after they turned 60. Um, so that, that moment of those disjunctures are really striking to me, especially as a historian um, whose experiences with oral histories and interviews have often been sources of great frustration. So I was really interested to see um, the relationship in this book between documents and interviews. Um, and I, I hope Alana might tell us a little bit more about that, that relationship between archives and fieldwork. Um, or archives and, and ethnographic research, and what could be learned or overlooked by each mode of research you were in. You know, when you're being an anthropologist or being a historian, I realize that's kind of a, a, also a false divide. Um, but I wondered if different modes of research generated different arguments for you, um, and maybe even drove that bipartite structure of the book of the humanitarian situation and the humanitarian condition. It struck me that humanitarians have changed less than refugees over time, um, that the way that they debate whether camps will make refugees idle, um, will it sap their initiative, that could be like the 30s, the 50s, the 70s, or today that humanitarians are saying those things. Um, so I wondered whether humanitarians were the static ones while refugees are more dynamic. Um, and then I also wanted to pose a question about the political futures that the book points towards. Um, because Alana makes this very compelling point that the lessons of the Palestinian experience are not just for other refugee groups, but they're really for all of us who live in this world. Um, because they demonstrate what forms of politics are possible even in conditions of enormous precarity. Um, so they make us ask what can change when there's so much that can't change, um, which I think is a very instructive lesson in our contemporary world. Um, so I took the final chapters of the book to suggest that the most promising programs, from Alana's point of view, um, are those that are aimed not at material improvement, but a kind of reorientation of perspective for refugees. Um, and since that's where the book ends, I, I would love to hear more about what kind of politics you imagine could result or emerge from that reorientation, um, and what you see as the range of possibilities. So, starting point for more conversation. So, the you have a question about about the research process, but there was another more this conceptual is, question that well, might there is, tie yeah. across all of ours. Though. Yeah, well, I think um, you know, Susan had raised this question about timeliness of projects, which I think is something that we all 
um, we're grappling with in our work and sort of problems of writing to the contemporary. Um, but as a methodological question, I was asking about the relationship between your field work and your documentary research or archival work and you know what you thought was possible in each mode or what kinds of different arguments they generated. And then um, the more contemporary question, I guess, is what sort of political futures you think might emerge um, from that reorientation of perspective that comes out of the final chapters. Um, so maybe I'll start with the second, actually, because I think that, precisely because I think this is something that, you know, rather than getting into the weeds that we can do that, um, that runs across all of our texts, which is, which is that there is the, there's two things. There's the sort of weight of the, of the, present um, that in which, you know, so this is both a historical problem and a current problem. That is, every every moment that, that I'm tracing, and I think that, that you are each tracing, has its own weight of the present. Um, and then we come with the weight, we, whoever is writing, come with the weight of our presence. And so part of actually, I think one of the, the challenges and maybe this isn't so non-responsive to your, your methodological question, is how to try to both somewhat analytically disentangle, but also give space for those different weights of the present. Because when, you know, if I'm thinking about the ways in which refugees are trying to grapple with the capacity to make political claims in a situation that seems to deny them politics, they, they are doing that with an eye to a future, but in a present that is pressing very, very sharply on them, right? The impact, you know, there's the constant struggle with the impasse of the present. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, that, I, was, that I was trying to do, and I, I really sort of see, see this in all order, is try to figure, to try to capture what are the impasses of, you know, a given theoretical apparatus, right? The impact, you know, the impasses of a of a particular moment, and I do think that um, for me, the cross cutting across through archives and ethnography is a is a helpful way to try to do some of that work. They never feel as methodologically as different as people think they will. Like the you know in a, one in the archival record, including in the archival record that is a record of institutions, there are, there is the presence of refugees. Um, and not only boxed into the bureaucratic categories of humanitarian regulation. So you can see that you can get at some of the kind of voicing that you might get at in, in field work. Um, and field work has its also the limitations of the, you know, the structures that you might find in, in the archive, but the going going across them. Anyway, this was very dumb. I always I, I find very helpful. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Ilana Feldman's book, Life Lived in Relief: Humanitarian Predicaments and Palestinian Refugee Politics. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Murad Idris's War for Peace, Genealogies of a Violent Ideal in Western and Islamic Thought. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. 
Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>